You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. the Pullman Palace Car Company just after the Civil War, and it became one of the richest and most powerful companies in America. Pullman was a shrewd businessman. He not only built the cars, he also maintained ownership of them and hired the men to provide service to the passengers. They used to call the cars hotels on wheels because they were so elegant. And of course, the service was very elegant. The conductors who sold and collected tickets were always white men. But the personal service, which is what really made the Pullman Company famous, was provided by black men. Of course, in the early days, these men were former slaves. The porter had to do everything. He greeted passengers, carried baggage, made up the sleeping berths, tidied up the cars, served food and drinks, shined shoes, and had to be available night and day to wait on the passengers. For all this, the Pullman Company paid the porter a very small salary. He had to depend on tips from the passengers to make a living. By the 1920s, Pullman employed more black workers than any other company in the United States. That was the voice of Rosina Tucker. She was the wife of a Pullman porter, and she was also an organizer in the porter's fight to unionize. The footage you just heard is from a 1982 documentary called Miles of Smiles, Years of Struggle. It's one of the few films about the porter's struggle, which is kind of surprising because that campaign was one of the biggest civil rights conflicts of the pre-World War II era. It laid the groundwork for everything that came after. See, in the early 1900s, being a Pullman porter wasn't just a job. It was a symbol of upwardly mobile blackness. In towns like Oakland, where a lot of porters lived, railroad men, as they were called, were at the core of an emerging black middle class. Of course, this success didn't go unchallenged. Across the country, Ku Klux Klan membership was soaring, fueled by its goal of dragging black folks back to the 18th century. But at the same time, another movement was digging in its heels and pushing in the opposite direction, towards a future where African Americans would no longer be second-class citizens. In the vanguard of this movement, was the Pullman Porters Union. It was called the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And one of its leaders was a man named C.L. Dellums. But before I say anything else about C.L. Dellums, here's an interview clip that reveals quite a bit about his leadership style. This thing got pretty low down. The Pullman Company spent millions of dollars to destroy the Brotherhood. Some of their top officials asked us for a conference. The top man asked Mr. Randolph, would Mr. Randolph, Mr. Webster, and Mr. Dellums give him a couple of hours of their time? He just wanted to talk. I mean, we went down to the Pullman office uh, 10 o'clock one morning, and, and we talked until uh, a little after 12 o'clock. 
And then he wanted to take us over to his club, some ritzy club, you know, that the rich people have, for lunch. Well, we told him we couldn't do that, that uh, we came down to talk with him, but not to break bread with him. And he was disappointed. He, he didn't, didn't understand. He didn't understand that. No. We explained to him, you know, we saw he just really didn't understand that if we were seen, and we would be seen, if we walked out of this Pullman building and walked down the street with you, uh, somebody would, would see us and they'd follow us and see where we went. And they'd see us going in this ritzy club that you belong to. It would spread over this nation like wildfire that we had sold out. We're hobnobbing with the big shots of the Pullman Company now. We've been seen going in, a, uh, in your private club and everything, so we wouldn't do that. C.L. Dellums wasn't just a leader of the Brotherhood. He was also the first West Coast director of the NAACP. He ended up holding quite a few important positions simultaneously. The point is that it's hard to imagine the stress he must have been under. He was constantly navigating between two worlds. On the one hand, he needed to project authority and gravitas to the heads of corporate America and white political leaders. But on the other hand, he needed working-class black folks to trust that he would always be on their side, always be one of them. I don't think anything could illustrate his commitment to this balancing act better than a story that I heard from his daughter, Marva. It's about how her dad, Ciel, even got dressed up to do yard work. Have you ever heard of a man mowing a lawn in his suit? My dad had his suit pants on, his dress shirt, sleeves rolled up, mowing the lawn. He never wore jeans or anything like that. That's, that was him. He was a very meticulous dresser. So, you might be wondering why we're talking about Dellums and the Brotherhood now. Well, here's one more story that should help answer that question. Not long after World War II, Dellums organized some of California's first protests against police brutality. Eventually, the committee he helped form got a closed-door meeting with the OPD, and apparently Dellums lost his temper. One of the other committee members was a man of God, a local reverend named H.T.S. Johnson. And after the meeting, Dellums starts apologizing to the reverend, saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have used that vulgarity and challenged the chief of police to a fist fight. That wasn't very proper of me. And the reverend stops CL in the middle of all this and says, don't apologize. You spoke my sentiments too. That conversation happened 80 years ago. And yet, you can easily imagine it happening in 2021. Which isn't to say that Dellums failed, but of course, there's still a long way to go. Here today to unpack Dellums' legacy is Susan D. Anderson. Susan is a history curator and program manager at the California African American Museum and formerly worked with the California Historical Society as well as the African American Museum and Library at Oakland. Also, she's currently writing a book about the history of African-Americans in California, which we will also discuss in this conversation. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. Susan Anderson, thank you so much for joining me today on East Bay Yesterday. Before we start talking about C.L. Dellums and the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Reporters, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Like, how did you get interested in studying the history of African Americans in California? I got interested probably because of my own family background. Growing up in the Bay Area, I heard people say all the time that African-Americans didn't really come to California until World War II. I heard people say that there weren't that many Black people in California. 
I just knew these things weren't true because my own family had been in the state since the end of the 19th century and established an institution, a church, Bethlehem Lutheran Church, which is still uh, flourishing in West Oakland. And so from a very early age, I started gathering materials and facts and information about the Black presence in California. And then over time and over many different careers, I started writing about it and getting published. And it just took off. And that's really what my life is kind of devoted to right now is telling these stories and filling these gaps because there's still a lot of false information about African-Americans in the state. And I understand you're working on a book that's going to encompass a lot of this history? Yes. I'm working on a text that I hope is going to be useful to people. It has a premise that California as a place, especially a place that's considered liberal and open and free is hard to understand and maybe impossible to understand if you don't know um, the role that African Americans played in making the state that way because the state was established in racial injustice and in social inequity. Um, so it's a civic history of African Americans in California starting really with the gold rush from the time it was a state in the United States uh, through Black Lives Matter. And it ends in Black Lives Matter because I want to conclude with California as a place where Black people have brought innovation um, to their civic endeavors. And a lot of people don't realize that the Black Lives Matter uh, movement was founded in California. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, C.L. Dellums lived most of his life in Oakland, California, but before he came to the East Bay, he was born and raised in Texas. Is there anything you can tell us about this early part of his life before he became the iconic civil rights leader that he emerged into during the 30s and 40s and later? Well, um, C.L. Dellums came from a family that was in Corsicana, Texas. It's about an hour out of Dallas. And it was a fairly prosperous place by the time he was born. There were a lot of black people that lived in Corsicana, but it was dominated by white people who for generations supported the Confederacy. And one thing I wanna say about the town is in, uh, in doing research about it, is that there was a lot of racial violence in Corsicana. A year after C.L. Dellums was born, there was a horrendous lynching in that town. About 5,000 white people, including prominent citizens, burned a 22-year-old black man named John Henderson. Uh, it was a public spectacle. At any rate, this, this horrible lynching happened, as I said, a year after C.L. Dellums was born. And so the tension and the violence and the threat of violence was probably always there. And C.L. Dellums' father, William Henry Dellums, was an activist. He was a Mason. Um, he was probably involved in the NAACP. Uh, his mother, Emma Anthony Dellums, was very literate and cultured. And C.L. Uh, was born in Corsicana. He was there until he graduated from high school. And he stayed in town for a few more years. But when you look at the history of the town, of the racial violence, you can see in these individual lives like C.L. Dellums why there was a great migration, why people left all of this behind. And he certainly did as a young man, I think he was about 23, 
um, when he finally uh, came to the Bay Area, uh, California. Right. And not long after he arrives in West Oakland, he gets a job as a Pullman porter. Um, This position hasn't existed for a few decades now, so people, especially some of the younger listeners, might not know what what a porter did. Can you explain a little bit about what that job entailed and why it was seen as such a prestigious position? And I should mention that the Pullman company that owned all these train cars, they exclusively hired black men for this position of Pullman porters. So can you give a little context about why that was and and what the job was? Sure. Well, Dellums used to quote what he said was a common phrase that when he he learned when he came to the Bay Area that there were only three ways for a black man to earn a living on the trains, on ships, and by doing something illegal. Um, So on the trains didn't mean only porters. There are a lot of jobs on trains, obviously, but the labor setup that George Pullman established within the Pullman empire of trains really was derived from slavery. And uh, it contrived a master-servant relationship between white passengers and black employees. And, you know, there, there, it was just an assumption. It was a logic that black people are servants, servants are black people. That was an assumption that existed throughout U.S. society. So the Pullman Porter job was this kind of really interesting paradox and contradiction. Uh, It was a difficult job. It existed under discriminatory working conditions. They were the poorest paid workers in the railroad system. They would work up to 400 hours for $800 a month at a time when it took $2,000 a month to properly support a family. Um, Porters on the train were at the beck and call of white passengers for 24 hours. They could be summoned in the middle of the night. And the system was such that white unions and white workers in the railroads were collaborating with management and this racially stratified structure. At the same time, porters were in the African-American community, they had respect. In fact, it wasn't just porters, but there was a phrase that uh, a friend of my family who passed away a few years ago, she was uh, joined our family church when she was a teenager in the in the 1930s. She always told me that there was a phrase that black people had, they would say that somebody was a railroad man. And that was a sign of respect, uh, whether they were a, a, a porter or a cook or some had another, a cleaner. So in a country where this kind of structure was set up throughout the society, not just in the railroad system, having a job as a porter was gainful employment. It wasn't digging ditches. And the prevalence of things like home ownership among porters uh, was really high. It offered travel and adventure and opportunities. So uh, within Black culture, porters had this sort of exalted position. Also, as travelers and as people involved in the transportation system, they brought home news literally through helping to distribute Black newspapers, and they brought home views. So they were these harbingers of new experiences, really, for the whole community. So in some ways, they, especially by carrying uh, the Black press, they were helping to organize Black America around, you know, certain commonly held uh, concepts and political views and things like that. 
on the train, the porter met celebrities, politicians, and wealthy white people who would otherwise never associate with blacks. The porter was a gracious host and friend to these passengers, and people happily entrusted their children to his care because he was seen as such a kind and gentle figure. No matter that he was a gracious host on the sleeping cars, when the train pulled in, the porter lost the so-called privilege of being the friend and confidant of white passengers. He was still a black man and a second-class citizen. Let's talk a little bit about the rise of the, the union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, because as you mentioned, um, on the one hand, this, this Pullman Porter job was very prestigious. It was seen as a step towards the middle class when there was very limited employment prospects due to just overwhelming racism in society. But at the same time, you said it was underpaid. These guys had to work their butts off. I mean, it was a challenging job, not to mention the fact that I'm sure they were exposed to all kinds of personal racism, which has been well documented in a lot of the books that have come out about the Pullman Porter. So it was um, it was a good job, but it was a very hard job for many, many reasons. And then along comes this concept of getting these guys a union, which was completely unprecedented. There had never been a national union of black workers before that. And we can't talk about this story without bringing up a man by the name of A. Philip Randolph. So can you tell me a little bit about who Mr. Randolph was and the the genesis of this concept and, and how that campaign kind of took form? Sure. Um, well, I want to say that historically speaking, black workers started organizing themselves at least going back through the early 19th century. And so these attempts and this work didn't begin in the 20th century, not by any stretch. And from the beginning, there were always this same setup that white workers excluded black workers from their labor unions, and black workers tried to organize, and they had to organize among themselves because nobody was offering them entry into organized labor. And Pullman... Uh, had these conditions, the poor working conditions, and a lot of black workers. Uh, They were one of the largest private employers of black men, especially in the United States. I think about 12,000, they employed about 12,000 porters. Absolutely. And just for people to kind of picture this, imagine a time in America before airplanes, before interstate highways, literally the most luxurious way to get around, the most common way was trains. And these sleeping cars were really seen as like a status symbol for people that could afford to ride in them. And so thousands of trains trains crisscrossing the country every day. And who's working on those trains? The Pullman porters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So... The porters had become fed up by the mid-1920s and had tried a lot of different things. And a group of leaders in New York, um, Ashley Totten was the most prominent leader, had been paying attention to kind of what was going on. And I want to mention a couple of things before talking specifically about Asa Philip Randolph. This was a time starting with World War I and through the Depression, uh, the, a time that was characterized by what was called the New Negro. Uh, especially after World War I, when the black soldiers came home to parades in place like, places like New York City, after their experiences serving, especially on the Western Front, their experiences in Europe, in places that didn't have the same kind of racism that the U.S. had, there was a, a kind of militancy in the air in Black communities across the country. People are familiar with the Harlem Renaissance as kind of an outcome of that, But the Harlem Renaissance existed in this context uh, 
of pride. You know, the black newspapers were talking, uh, saying things like, the time for cringing is over. And one of the signs of that militancy and that resistance was a newspaper that was published in Harlem by Owen Chandler and A. Philip Randolph called The Messenger. And A. Philip Randolph and Owen Chandler were socialists. Um, they were anti-capitalists. They were also race men, which meant that eventually they left the Socialist Party because of their limitations on the issue of color and the fact that they they felt that the socialists treated black people as if they were children, as they put it. But they were militant. They were outspoken. They were the leading edge of that time. And black people around the country were watching them and reading The Messenger. And certainly Ashley Totten and this group of porters who wanted to challenge the policies of um, you know, the Pullman Company and the way porters and black men were treated, they saw in Asa Philip Randolph a leader who saw the limitations of capitalism and the system that they were trapped in. And they approached him and asked him to lead the organizing effort to create the Brotherhood. And um, as we know, he said yes. But that was not a uh, an easy battle to get recognition. Before we get into some of the backlash that this union organizing um, campaign engendered, you know, the company was not happy about this development. Let's talk a little bit about why was Oakland such an important hub for this organization effort? And why do you think C.L. Dellums was the uh, the right man for the job? Because he was tapped by uh, a Philip Randolph to be the West Coast leader, essentially, of this brotherhood organizing effort. Well, Oakland was, for the first Overland Transcontinental Railroad, Oakland was the Western terminus. So it was really the beginning of what we see as the Oakland port, which is one of the largest ports in the country. And that was the beginning of Oakland being the jumping off point for the development of the West in a way that nobody had ever seen before, the economic development of the West. But the but the porters were a a big, important part of the population because of uh, also segregation. They were sort of confined to this area to live in this residential area of West Oakland. You couldn't, you basically couldn't work for the railroad unless you lived near the, near the station. Mm-hmm. That station on uh, 16th. On six, the 16th Street station. Yeah. And C.L. Dellums, when he migrated from Corsicana, Texas to the Bay Area, he found a place to live first at a hotel um, and then, you know, later in his home in that area. And he he came there first and he never moved, he and his family. Yeah, I think his first uh, office was above like a billiard hall on 7th Street. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's where he was. That's where the Porter's Union was. And the minute that he met a Philip Randolph, who I think came to Oakland the first time in 25. I mean, it was the first it was the same year that they were organ they began organizing the union. I mean, it was as if they just each took one look at each other and their bond was established from the beginning. CL Dellums, had been a porter for a short time. Once you started organizing for the union, because there was such a spying system uh, in the Pullman company, it was inevitable that you'd get fired. So his being a porter didn't last long because he was just, he was organizing almost from the beginning. Right, yeah, no, like you said, um, there was, uh, the spying went to the extent, I believe, that the railroad even had people watching 
his headquarters on 7th Street. And if porters who were still employed with the company were seen leaving that building, then they would be fired too. They were really lashing out at anyone who was a part of this um, effort. And it took years. I mean, from the time that they decided to start a union until uh, when they finally got recognition. It was 12 years. 12 years. So mm-hmm. tell me about that. Like, how, what, what did he do during those 12 years of organizing and how did they eventually win that battle? Well, one of the things was that they understood that everything was connected. And the struggle against Pullman was more than a labor struggle. It was also a struggle for dignity. It was a struggle for civil rights. So that was their perspective from the beginning. And it meant that the porters worked with a lot of collaborating organizations in some cities, including on the West Coast, including in the Bay Area, there's almost no dividing line between the NAACP and the Brotherhood. They're so intermingled and they work so closely together and they're the, all the same people. With C.L. Dolmes being a perfect example of that, he ended up, I think, being like the head of the West Coast NAACP while he was still working for the union mm-hmm. in later years. And then people who came along later, like Tarai Hall Pittman and, you know, Francis Albreyer and all of the people who were leaders of the NAACP they were also very much involved in the Brotherhood. I mean, Frances Albreyer was uh, a maid, and she helped organize the maids on the railroad. So that was true, not just in the Bay Area, but everywhere it was. People understood that this was a, a race struggle. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because, I mean, that's really why we're talking about this. Yes, the the porters were fighting for, you know, uh, better contracts in terms of less hours, better pay, uh, all kinds of specific demands regarding their economic fortunes and their dignity. But really why this is still so significant to this day is because they were laying the groundwork for everything that happened in the 50s and 60s and later generations you couldn't have had the March on Selma and all the things that Dr. Martin Luther King accomplished if this generation before him hadn't been doing this kind of organizing and training people on how to organize. And so um, you started talking about Francis Albreyer, for example, and I don't know if, if everyone knows this, but just to remind listeners, so she became the first uh, black woman to be hired as a welder in the Kaiser shipyards. And one of the most important chapters of uh, you know East Bay history is the Second Great Migration, with um, so many you know black folks leaving the South to come to the shipyards in Richmond and Oakland and San Francisco for jobs, and those jobs wouldn't have been open to African American workers if it hadn't been for the efforts of these people who came out of this struggle for the recognition of this union of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car. Porters. And I, I do want to get to that sort of World War II chapter in a minute because that's so important. But just before we move on to that, just underlining the significance of, of this union recognition, this was the first time in the history of the United States that a group of black workers, a black union, essentially challenged and beat one of the most powerful white-dominated corporations in the country. Can you talk a little bit about the symbolism of that achievement? It represents, as I said, I mean, years before and generations before people had been, black people had been struggling to organize uh, labor unions. And for the Brotherhood, it was kind of a two-pronged struggle. One was to organize the porters themselves, to organize the communities that they lived in and get support because the Pullman Porter and the Pullman Company had been around for a long time, the Pullman Company, I mean, and they had done their work in cultivating black support and cultivating people who thought that it was great that the Pullman Company reserved all these jobs for black men. It was tough going because Brother Randolph 
was preaching a new philosophy that was even opposed by many black leaders, including ministers and newspaper men. He said that black people should not beg white businessmen for fair pay and better working conditions. They should organize and demand them. So the porters were actually also fighting against this kind of traditional attitude that anything was good, that Pullman was good for the black community. That was a big part of their struggle as well. Just real quick, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because there's this um, just really revolting uh, expression that um, you'll find if you read any history book about the Pullman Porters. And uh, Abraham Lincoln's son was on the board of this company, the Pullman Company. And there was a saying that uh, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and his son gave them jobs. And I think that really encapsulates that very paternalistic attitude that you're talking about. Especially since the slaves freed themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, as historians in the field of history, also starting to recognize more and more, thankfully, there are scholars coming along, more recognizing more and more what Du Bois wrote more than half a century ago about the role that, you know, black people played in liberating themselves during the Civil War by leaving their enslaved labor and forcing the U.S. government and the military to deal with them as free people. But moving on from that, the paternalism that the Pullman Company and those kinds of jobs uh, represented, that is at the heart of what the Brotherhood was fighting against. And as I was saying, it meant that they also had to fight elements within the black community itself. Uh, So it was actually a complicated battle. And the porters, the brotherhood understood all of its dimensions. That's why they were successful. They managed somehow to hang on to their own membership at a time when It was a risk, a huge risk to your livelihood, to your family, and in cases to your physical health and and possibly your life. It was a risk to be a member of the Brotherhood. And I mean, it's like you said, it's kind of amazing that, you know, not only are they fighting these entrenched attitudes that are telling them to be grateful for these jobs, not not only are they fighting this powerful company, but like you alluded to earlier, they're also fighting the white labor movement. Even white unions weren't getting their back and standing in solidarity with these workers. So they're fighting the elements in the black community that don't want to rock the boat and that think Pullman's doing us a favor. They're fighting the Pullman Company itself, which was really underhanded and vicious. And you're right, they're fighting the labor, organized labor itself, which was just vehemently racially segregated and racially motivated. Which was just so self-destructive because when we look back through American labor history, there's this dynamic where when a a white union goes on strike, the company is going to try to break that strike and they will hire replacement workers, commonly called scabs, to fill in for those white jobs. And a lot of the time the people they would hire were black workers or other workers of color who were A, you know, desperate for paying work, and B, didn't feel any loyalty to these white unions. Why should they? You know, they've been excluded from that too. And so this was really like a divide and conquer strategy that the ruling class mastered, playing these kind of working white class and working uh, black working class people and other people of color against each other. And you see it happen over and over again. Um, It's so frustrating.
Before we get to the second half of my interview with Susan Anderson, I want to play a clip from the Black Liberation walking tour. As I mentioned earlier, C.L. Dellums lived most of his life in Oakland. In fact, he stayed at a quaint little house on Brockhurst Street from the 1930s all the way up until his passing in 1989. And this house is one of the stops on a new self-guided audio walking tour of the Hoover Foster neighborhood. If you want to know more about the tour, check out blwt.org, and you can also listen to my episodes, Hoover Foster Stories, Volume 1 and 2. Anyway, the reason I'm playing this clip now is because C.L. Dellums is such a powerful speaker that I think it's worth hearing him in his own words. The other person you'll hear in this clip is his daughter, Marva. The clips of CL are from an interview recorded in the early 80s by Adam David Miller for the African American Museum and Library at Oakland, and the clips of Marva are from an interview I recorded with her this summer. If you do get a chance, please check out the whole Black Liberation walking tour in person. But for now, here's the Dellum section. Anybody could take the porter's job. Anybody traveling as a passenger, even though it might be the first trip they've ever been on a train, they could uh, ride him up and uh, get him fired. During my rabble-rousing days, I used to say that uh, all the job consists of is three things. It's a hard job with long hours, low pay, and a mean boss man. What have you got to lose besides your chains? Working as a Pullman porter, he got wind of it from riding the, the, the rail cars that there was someone who was trying to get a union started. Well, of course, that that fire in his soul stoked up a bit, and uh, he started getting information about this union. And he wanted to join this union. And he started receiving... Uh, like a little newspaper that Mr. Randolph uh, had, and he started reading it. Well, my father got in trouble for union activity also because during that time in the dining cars, they had a black curtain, and it separated the, you know, the black workers from the uh, people who were sitting in the dining car. Most of the, you know, time there were whites, and my father tore the curtain down. And he got in a lot of trouble for that. So he got fired. <laughs> and, uh, of course, at that time, they appointed him one of the vice presidents of the union. And uh, he, he carried the West Coast, you know, getting people into the union. And he worked out of his place on 7th Street. In those days, wealthy, big officials like the Pullman come to pick up the telephone. And, call the and tell the cops to go get us and put us in jail. They would have done it. Years after that, one of them attempted in Oakland to have me put in jail by calling the Pullman superintendent on the phone, telling him to go get me and put me in jail. Now, here we are. We're left out here facing this powerful Pullman company. And let me tell you something. In 1928, the Pullman company was one of the nation's most powerful industrial institutions. It took us two years to find out who sat on the board of directors. They called it a board of controls. As I recall, seven of the most powerful and wealthiest families in the United States had representatives on that board of controls. So you see who owned it, you know, when you think about seven of the most the wealthiest, most powerful families, uh, including, you know, Wall Street, everything it was Wall Street, you know. They were gathering together and it gave them that strength and that confidence and the ability to buy property, to to be citizens and to, you know, put their rights in front of them and know what they could do as citizens of this country. My dad said when the men would be on the road, they'd be in a uniform and they'd come back in the neighborhoods, the kids would just run up to them. They were like heroes to the younger kids, being in that uniform, 
but it built up that confidence and that that strength and that pride. They had pride in what they were doing. And that union helped them to do that. We did not believe that the Negro would ever come into his own in this country until he entered the mainstream and all of its tributaries of American life. And certainly the organized labor movement was one of the mainstreams. And therefore we belonged in there. That's the reason we went in. And of course, the mission we went in there for was to drive official discrimination out. Out of the union. And we were dedicated that we would drive it out of every union in there, or we'd never stop trying. What happened was that if something would happen to a porter, they were punishing him by cutting out his route or whatever. They would all get together, and the ladies would get together, and they'd raise money to take care of this family until they'd get back on his feet. And, of course, my dad would go down and probably curse out a few people. He was always fighting for his the men of his union. And his office was always open. If they call him up in the middle of the night, he'd go down there. He was always available to the members. And I think that's what made that membership strong, is that he was always there for them. You know, I was really unaware of my father's notoriety until I was 14 years old. They kind of kept me on the sidelines because my father went through FBI investigations and uh, he was afraid of uh, someone trying to hurt my mother and me. So he kind of kept us in the background. You know, I never heard him speak or, you know, I wasn't around him that much when he was active until I was 14. And I was ushering for the youth NAACP at the Oakland Auditorium. And he got up to speak. And I was frozen in my tracks. I was awestricken when I heard that man speak. And I finally realized who he was and what he stood for. And I was so proud. I really was. I really was. We were just as opposed to discrimination, to segregation, uh, in every form, social, political, economic, all was the same to us. There must be total equality in this country, freedom and equality. That was just one clip from the Black Liberation Walking Tour. If you want to hear the rest, either remotely or as part of the self-guided tour, check out blwt.org. And now, back to my interview with historian Susan D. Anderson. I want to take it back to the World War II era, because this was really a time when, you know, for example, just speaking about Oakland, and I think we, we probably saw similar numbers in Richmond and other cities throughout the Bay Area, the black population like quintupled essentially in a single decade. Well, the whole population, mm. everybody came to California, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was just black people that came to California. Mm -hmm. Everybody came to California because of the defense industry. So the white population, the Asian-American population, Latino population, every population just bloomed because of the jobs. But those jobs wouldn't have been available to people of color if not for folks. Well, they wouldn't be available to black. I don't know about this people of color thing. Okay. We know they weren't available to black people. And can you tell me a little bit about the role that people in the Brotherhood had at opening that industry up to black workers? You know, what I want to do is put this in a kind of context because mm -hmm. th there were things that were going on on a couple of levels. One was A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood and the leadership of the Brotherhood, which included C.L. Dellums as a, one of the vice presidents, of course, putting pressure on the federal government at the start, even before the U.S. had really started gearing up for World War II. But early on, in 41, A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood were pressuring the federal government 
over discrimination in defense industries. So that level was going on. Um, you know, this was all the, ended up being all decided in a meeting in the in the Oval Office with a Philip Randolph and the Secretary of the War Department and the Secretary of the Navy and FD President FDR and um, Walter White of the NAACP. That's this got hashed out in the White House after the government realized that the threat of the March on Washington that the Brotherhood was proposing was real. And Mr. Randolph said, well, Mr. President, you can call it whatever you will or may, but if you don't issue this executive order, we will march at least 100,000 strong. And then Roosevelt said, well, assuming that you would lead 100,000, anybody's down here, where would they eat? Where would they sleep? He said, Mr. President, we will eat in cafes and hotels and wherever everyone else eat. And we'll sleep in hotel lobbies, uh, wherever else other people sleep. And when we run out of space there, we'll sleep on the White House lawn. You know, it's our White House too, Mr. President. And so <laughs> finally, uh, Roosevelt saw that uh, this man uh, meant business and finally said, all right, all right, I'll issue the executive order. Once the executive order 8022 was issued and the Fair Employment Practices Commission was established on the federal level, that was a huge breakthrough. What it did was provide tools that people used on the ground. So in California... It was coalitions of people working together, and C.L. Dellums was involved in, in all of them, to challenge either the federal government or challenge private employers or challenge racist unions like the Boilermakers Union. This is how the change happened, through protesting, through um, exhorting ex public exhortations, whether they were from the pulpit or in the media, from lawsuits, from organizing. And during World War II, the black movement was focused on victory on two fronts. It was focused on what everybody knew was the double V movement, victory against racism and fascism. Uh, and Nazism and victory against Jim Crowism at home. So that's how these war jobs were open, made to open to black people once the tools were sort of wrenched from the federal government by the NAACP and the Brotherhood. Do you think that the struggle of the Pullman Porters and people like C.L. Dellums and A. Philip Randolph, do you think their legacy gets as much recognition as it deserves? No. Um, the legacy of the Pullman Porters of the Brotherhood and the Union doesn't get much attention. I don't think the struggles of black labor get much attention I don't think people understand that everything we know, like affirmative action and equal opportunity, uh, equal employment opportunity laws, all come out of black labor struggles. And for me, it's part of the bigger issue that the, the real, the tragedy of the negligence of the way that history is transmitted to people. You know, the movement, the Black Liberation Movement, is as old as the presence of the first Africans in the Americas. And as I said, it doesn't, it's never, it's never stopped. Part of the reason I'm interested in California's history is because, you know, in their civic work and in their organizing, and in their fights, African-Americans in California got laws to open the schools generations before Brown versus the Board of Education. 
and you know they helped open up a public accommodations like seats on streetcars a hundred years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. So people had been using their, you know, more or less free status to fight these battles long before the Southern movement mm. uh, began. And that's part of what's really missing in our understanding of the country. The Southern Civil Rights Movement has its own significance because we're talking about the battle in the former Confederacy and right. what that meant to everybody in the country. But the you know there's something that historians call the long struggle mm. um, that helps us recognize the longevity of this movement that began long, long, long before. And people in that movement... The leaders of it, whether they were Martin Luther King or Septima Clark, they knew that, partly because so many of them come out of this church history, and the church has been one of the main stages uh, and one of the main staging points for the freedom movement. Uh, so they're absolutely aware Oh yeah, I think I think the Brotherhood even funded some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s early activities. You know, when he was just a, a young uh, reverend coming up in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, the leader of the movement before King was sort of anointed to stand in front of everybody public was a member of the Brotherhood, E.D. Nixon. Mm -hmm. He was the organizing force. Between eating, it was the the two organizing forces in the Montgomery bus boycott were E.D. Nixon, who knew everybody and who was a retired Pullman porter in Montgomery, and the, the women's movement, which uh, actually organized the entire boycott. Yeah, so important to recognize that. So after the 1950s, um, the Pullman Company kind of started going downhill. This is uh, largely due to the rise of, uh, you know, automobile culture and uh, airline travel, etc. People just weren't using trains as much as they used to. And the whole profession of Pullman Porter and sleeper cars kind of fell by the wayside uh, due to this technological shift in American culture. But... Randolph and Dellums and a lot of these guys, like you're mentioning now, they stayed active in some of these struggles. Is there anything you can say about you know, their relationship with the younger generation of people that was coming up in the 50s and 60s that was kind of learning from their example? I don't know about that because I think that part of the problem of the, especially the 60s and the 70s, is that the younger generation of leaders created ruptures that dislodged these lines of transmission that had been well established between generations. Mm. And, you know, when you read about C.L. Dellums or you read about A. Philip Randolph, you read about their relationships with their fathers and with that, you know, their the father generation that's true for a long time. And then all of a sudden, after World War II and during the 60s and during the 70s, that's all killed one way or the other. And it's killed by the new generation. And maybe at that time, people felt that they needed to do that. But I don't think there's enough examination of it. I don't think people admit it, and I think if they do admit it and see it, they don't examine it enough. This is a really interesting point that you're bringing up, and I think probably part of this rupture that you're describing is the fact that a lot of the, you know, the black leaders and other leaders, you know, um, political young leaders in the 60s and 70s, they consider themselves much more revolutionary or radical. And I think a lot of the critiques that they made of the generations before them were that 
these older people were too incrementalist. They were trying to maybe integrate into the system or inch things forward. And we're trying to make a clean break with the past and create this new future. And that's still a tension, I think, especially in a lot of uh, you know younger activists or political circles. Um, looking back with your hindsight as a historian, um, is there anything else you can add to how we should think about that um, that situation of the the younger generation kind of splitting from the legacy that brought them to where they were? I guess it's a big part of the reason why history is important to me personally, mm. because I don't think there is any way to understand what's happening today without historical perspective. And I see people of all types running around without historical perspective, thinking that what they're doing is new, or thinking that what they're doing is revolutionary. Mm. That can be a delusion. And we see that in the results. What state is our society and how effective have they been in making change? So that's partly why I'm interested because I'm I'm constantly amazed as I as I dig into history as I t- I talk to a lot of elders I'm learning all the time about what has gone before and how much people actually accomplished and also learning that we're not really saying anything that that's that's that new. Um, I'm always I'm constantly reading speeches and texts that were created, say, in California in the 19th century, where people are saying it, it's you know it's in a Victorian prose or it's in a you know a flowery expression that has a different style than today, but what they're saying is what people are saying now. So I don't know. I just think that historical perspective is important. I think we've lost a lot. And I think that we better get it back because I think we're, I think uh, uh, we're suffering. Well, I think one of the reasons why a lot of these speeches sound the same is because people, especially black folks are still fighting a lot of these same struggles. Before we go, is there anything else that we haven't covered regarding CL Dellums, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters? Anything else you can think of that you think uh, the listeners would uh, appreciate hearing? I guess I, I would just lastly say that there's still a lot of work that can be done to research and tell these stories about not just Dellums, but the but the Brotherhood in California. Um, so there's room, really room, for people to add to our knowledge about this history. Where it's it's hardly it hasn't been half told yet. Well, I think a lot more of those stories are going to be coming out when your book drops, which we're all looking forward to. Susan Anderson, thank you so much for joining me today on Space Today. It's been a really, it's been a pleasure and it's been really informative talking to you. I feel like I've learned a ton from this conversation. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. You are welcome. The Brotherhood brought out qualities of strength and courage in the porters and their wives. They became leaders in their communities, bought homes, and sent their children to college. Thus, the porters were able to give their sons and daughters the opportunities they themselves had been denied to become lawyers and teachers and businessmen. As an organization, the Brotherhood laid the foundation for the civil rights movement in this country. It inspired black people by proving that they could organize and get results.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Big thank yous go out to the following. Dorothy Lazard, David Peters, Marva Dellums, Alternir Cook, the African American Museum and Library at Oakland, Larry Ty, Robert L. Allen, Emmerich Anklum, the Bancroft Library and Cal's Oral History Center, and of course, everybody involved with the production of the documentary film, Miles of Smiles, Years of Struggle. I highly recommend watching that entire movie. Also, I need to send a massive shout out to my Patreon supporters. If you're listening to this right now, I really want you to know how much your support means to me. I love making this show, and I hope you love it too, and I just, I couldn't possibly afford to do this without you. Whether you're donating $3 a month or $10 or more, it all adds up, and yeah, it just, it really, really helps, and it inspires me to keep making more. Thank you. If anybody else out there wants to support my ability to keep making new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com. There's a donate link at the top of the page. Lastly, thanks to everyone who follows East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I see you spreading the word about the show, and I really appreciate it. Uh, and I also appreciate those of you mentioning East Bay Yesterday in your Tinder bios. Uh, just learned about that, and hope it works out for you. Okay, the music for this episode came from Mead Lux, Ben Sullivan, and James P. Johnson. The theme song music came from Anatech, and that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>